0: No, but can you hear me? Back to me. Back to me. Come on, come on. Focus on me. Back to me. It's not all about you, Sam.
1: Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where a priest, a mechanical engineer and a Catholic speaker are in shock that so many people haven't ever been exposed to the evidence for God's existence. Or that Tasmania has more whiskey distilleries than the rest of Australia combined. Fact. Fact. In shock. (laughs) So, gentlemen, welcome. Marty, Father Dave, episode six. How are you? Good. Doing well? Tops. Excellent. Doing great. Excellent. How's your water? Watery. (laughs) So, in this particular episode, we want to look at any evidence for the existence of God. It's one of those things that I needed to actually encounter in some way, shape or form when I was going through university, and thankfully through Marty and his family and a few people who were around us at the time uh, was able to ask some hard questions and started to learn a few things that made my ears prick up. I think the very first thing that I heard was that there was actually historical evidence for Jesus existing mm. outside the Bible. Yeah, There were writings about Jesus on that yeah. side of it. But that also, but really also I mean, pati- the
0: particularly the Gospels, the Gospels are the ancient writing, but they're eyewitness accounts or or the colleagues of eyewitnesses who who wrote them. like they're, they're
1: pretty. I don't think I got that. I always thought of the Bible as just one book of many chapters, not as a whole heap of separate books that had been compiled together. What year were they compiled together? 300s?
2: Oh, when they were actually compiled or written.
1: No, compiled. It was in the, the canon. The when did the yeah, canon set?
2: Yeah, it was, it was around then. It, it t- t- took a while for everyone to get full agreement on what was in what was out. But, yeah. yeah.
1: And so they'd been floating around for quite a while, uh, and they'd been written and... And multiplied out, yeah, many times over. Oh, yeah. And then to also learn that things like the Gospel of Luke has a different, it has a very different beginning. It's the narrative of Mary's Our Lady's account of what was happening. It's the birth of Jesus, mm. it's Archangel Gabriel, and you ask that question. Well, how does Luke know that? And then to find out that Luke knew Our Lady, mm. they were in the same place. In fact it's believed they may have even have shared a home this is well after Jesus ascension that Luke may have, have actually taken care of our lady and that of course this is actually Mary's first hand account hence you get you get little passages like and Mary pondered this in her heart how would Luke know that how does he know this because he's actually talking to our lady that this is it's the gospel of Luke it's also the gospel of our lady mm. tied up within that that John was one of the disciples and what I've been told I should check this this with you Father Davis this is what we believe to be true or it's just a hypothesis but what I was told was that John was presented with the other three gospels are these true and John had said yes but they've missed some things and so hence John's gospel is very different it's all the bits that are that should be there but that weren't a part of the, the other three gospels that were that had been written at the time. And so John's the last one to be written, and John is aware of the other three, so takes a different angle. Fills in the gaps. F- fills in the gap. Mm. The look on your face was one of you hadn't heard that. No, right hadn't heard that before. But right. it,
2: it, yeah, it, John's Gospel is dramatically different in its style, so I could understand that being a reasoning behind it.
1: So we'll say we'll put that in the hypothesis yes. bracket. I think it's pretty
0: unlikely John wouldn't have had access to the other Gospels, don't you think? Oh, Once they're written out and copied and distributed, you, you think know, people would like,
1: come to see him? I think if people knew that John was the last floating apostle. around, yeah, that you'd go and see him. Mm. So people
0: went to see Luke Skywalker in that. It's funny. I was last just thinking of Blue- whatever, <laughs> whatever that movie was. Seek him out. Yeah.
1: Ray was that a name?
0: Yeah, who's on the Isle of Patmos? Was he?
1: Yeah.
2: This is getting a little bit confused. Good- <laughs> Bring it back to where <laughs> we began, Sam. <laughs>
1: So the evidence for for God existing, a big part of it was my own personal journey. I just want to start with this, was that I guess in our own lives, the reason that we're here, And I know because you've shared your own stories with me and I've shared my story with you guys in private, is that we've had these moments where God has reached into our lives. And I think it's really important that we talk about this because I've been hearing, unfortunately, increasingly here in Australia, in the Australian church, that God doesn't intervene into our lives, that somehow God is... God has presented something and then stood back and it's up to us to just, whether it be nice to each other or work out our faith or just do some sort of routine. I'm not really sure what what it boils down to. But I find that really difficult to to swallow simply that this has been such an integral part of my own faith journey was the moments when Jesus reached into my own life. And Mm. I'm thinking about moments like in Wyoming and the United States, which is this is what I talk about in schools for the students in particular, where everyone was saying, don't do it, because the next 148 kilometers at roughly the height of Mount Kosciuszko up in the Rocky Mountains, nothing but a frozen road for 148 k's with nothing in between. No civilization, no shops, no service stations. Over mountains to get to the next town, the locals were saying, don't do it. And I agreed with them, I was going to get the bus. I sat down to eat dinner. And as I was ate dinner, was quiet before God and was praying. And it genuinely felt as though God was saying, trust me, this overwhelming sense. God's saying, trust me with this. I was 9,000 cases into the journey. And on so many other occasions, I'd had that sense. And I'd pushed it aside to do what I felt was responsible or what I'm pretty sure God wouldn't ask me to do that. So I'm just going to do this. And I then found out what I missed. By the grace of God, I found out what I'd then missed out on. And that built to this moment. This kind of culminated at this point. And I thought, okay, God, I'll do it. But if I die out there, it's your fault. So I got up very early the next morning and headed out. And he said, I'll take that deal. Three days. So two nights camping out there. Minus 22, I think, when I started walking in the morning. Bitterly cold. Water supply froze rock solid on the first day. Ended up with mild pneumonia on the first night severe dehydration by 10am on the second day and ran out of food halfway through the second day and was only halfway. But walked out the other side, having had random Christians come to my aid, having no idea that I was out there, but happened to be carrying exactly what I needed. The first guy rocked up carrying a massive bottle of Gatorade and didn't even know why I'd bought it. Said, I'll be honest, I hate Gatorade, don't know why I bought it. The next guy rocked up with an arm full of food for me. And he just said, I just thought you might be hungry. And it just it got me to out the other side and I hurt. When I walked out the other side, my left foot was bleeding so badly that I could hear my foot squelching in the boot. Oh. I was in pain. I was wheezing badly from the pneumonia. And walking into the town, I could see a Super 8 motel and I was in love with that motel. <laughs> and yet it was in that moment, it felt like God overrode my thoughts and God was just saying, Sam, you didn't come here to go to hotels. You came here to go to the churches. Do the mission. I was indignant. I was just so angry that either I'm (laughs) contemplating this or God had prompted it in me, whatever the case was, and grappled with it, eventually gave up on it and just said, okay, God, I don't care, whatever. I'll go to the churches. Reluctantly walked on and locked church church after locked church and hotel after hotel, prayed a quick prayer, which was, God, this is stupid. I was at that point where my prayer was a little bit rough, a bit blunt. I just said, God, this is stupid, this is fruitless, there's no one in these churches, I'm done, I'm hurting, you know that. I'm getting a hotel. But I find I'll find one more church. Then I'm done. Now thankfully the final church I walked up to was Our Lady of Fatima Catholic Church. Knocked on the presbytery door and a bloke with a big beard opened up, Father Fox. I introduced myself to him, and as it turns out, the whole bit that happened in between here, but he turned out to be Wyoming's delegate for the unity of Christians. <laughs> and the next morning I walked out off the five-star hotel he'd put me up in for two nights so I could get my lungs and toes seen to the next day. And I walked into a, into a press conference because Father Fox had organized the state news, uh, newspapers, television crews and radio stations, plus the local pizza guy. Pizza's very for pizzas for everyone for afterwards, Father Fox was helping himself to pizza for breakfast. And we got sacked into a press conference and it snowballed. The media got it, it went through the newspapers. Uh, the were radio stations doing hourly updates, and it kept snowballing through the world's media. At times it felt like it died out and it had picked back up again because of the, the media coverage. They'd been waiting for me to get to that particular region. And even in Poland, uh, Slovakia, in Europe, you know, in those regions, it was still rolling on. It was still the ramifications of it were still there. And look back on it and feel like this was, I had every right to choose what was responsible, to take the bus. But had I taken the bus around Shirley Basin, this wilderness area in Wyoming, it would have dropped me in Casper, the city, 148 k's away at the bus depot, which was one kilometre past Father Fox. I would have never met the guy. I would have taken the three-star hotel next door and walked on from there. Yes, it was the responsible option. It wasn't what God was asking me to do. And I saw the fruit of it of just how amazing the fruit was to walk on into towns where the whole town's now waiting for me. And it changed the whole mission. The mission went to countries I didn't even walk through. I started getting emails from the Maltese. Never been there. And for me, this things like this and multiple moments like this became evidence for the existence of God in, in little simple ways. My faith grew through encounter. It wasn't that I had faith because Father Dave, you said I should. It was faith based on actually encountering God and seeing the fruit involved in those levels. So whether it's at that very personal level or whether it is actually understanding Jesus in history, that this is actually a historical person. And then that ultimate question, who is he? Have you ever had moments in your life where that question has, you felt like it's pinned you to the ground, you can't move, you're struggling with it. Who is this guy? Was he who he said he was? Is he still around? Hmm. Marty, it was your family who put before me C.S. Lewis, the liar, lunatic, or lord. The trilemma. Yes. Did your parents ever give that to you before they gave it to me? Uh,
0: no, I think I was just listening on when they were talking
1: to you. <laughs> you were off doing your, doing your homework.
0: Let me I just want to add to your just experience with one of my own. Just, just before the time I met you, um, when I was about 18, I was pretty depressed. I was very depressed. I didn't know I was depressed because this was before depression was popular. Oh come on! You just I'm going to, to get something for that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was uh, yeah, I was angry and <laughs> you, you were cool before it was cool. <laughs> and but it was really bad. It was like living in the bottom of a pit, and you could sort of see the sun going over the sky above you. So you could appreciate that other people could see the sun, but I couldn't see the sun because I was at the bottom of this pit. And I couldn't climb out of the pit because the walls were too wet and stuff. And so you're just sort of trapped there and it was terrible. And I sort of, you know, I was sort of praying at that time and saying, you know, Lord, this is, you know, I don't know, you know, whatever. And, you know, I guess, I guess this is just sort of, you know, growing up, like I guess or something. And, you know, it sort of sucks. And,. And as long as I was prepared to sort of promulgate this idea that, you know, it's okay, I suppose, really just lying to myself and the Lord, it continued. But I remember a time I was in the shower and I'd had enough. And I remember sitting there saying, Jesus, this sucks. This is terrible. This is awful. And it's not good enough. And it's not okay, And you need to do something about it. And then called him some fairly nasty names in amongst that. <laughs> the next day, I was diagnosed properly with depression and started getting medical treatment. I did And, didn't know and this, that. Had, this had been going on for six months up until that point. You know, it's pretty, pretty bad stuff. And as soon as I was prepared to be honest with the Lord and ask for help, and the Lord acted immediately. Now, then there was a, you know, there's a sort of medical treatment and counselling and antidepressants and stuff, which lasted some more months maybe another six months or something but the the nexus of that treatment starting was was when I was prepared to be honest with God
1: Mm. and that that change that that unfolds as a result
2: yeah I think uh my my experience that that story just kind of reminded me I'd been involved in a youth group through most of high school um but it was probably mostly about just hanging out with friends It it was a few kind of God moments and encounters with God in the midst of that but by the time I got to university, the real gods I worshipped were, you know, sporting success, looking for success in career. That, that, those are the things that I was really invested in. Been there. And over the, sp- <laughs> <laughs> over the space of about six months, these things just started collapsing in my life. You know, so I've been training for about two years for cycling, hoping to sort of finish school, start racing. And I just got... Food poisoning one day and lost 10% of my body weight and two years worth of
1: training. Is that on. possible? For those who can't see Father Dave, Marty, how would you describe Father Dave? Thin?
2: Two-dimensional.
0: He's,
1: he's not a fat bastard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a good 15 kilos heavier now than I was when I was in, in year 12. Wow. <laughs> so uh, having had no body fat on me at the time, my body ate into muscle. And I just lost two years of training, gone yeah. on two days. And then I got to university and all my dreams of a successful career just started fading because I was failing. I just wasn't getting through. And I hit this point. It would have been about, I don't know, maybe April or May that year. And I remember sitting on my bed at night just feeling absolutely empty and just shattered. Like it was like all these years I've been working towards something and it's slipping through my fingers. And I just, I think that was the first time I ever really prayed like I'd said all sorts of prayers over the years, but this this came out of the depths. It was like, God, if you're there, do something. And I just remember, like I was sitting on my bed and just being overwhelmed by the sense of peace and just basically fell back and fell asleep. But I woke up the next morning, I'm just like, something's different. I don't know what it is, but I feel like I'm not alone in this now. And um, that was the beginning of a whole journey of rediscovering my faith which if I can go on a bit, like it was actually interesting because I was studying science at the time. Please go on. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) I was studying science at the time and first year science, we're doing biological sciences. They were basically trying to knock any religion out of us uh, because the whole thing was around evolution. It was like religion's rubbish, God is rubbish. The, The irony was it actually made me sit up and take notice of my faith even more because I realized how unscientific these arguments were. Like it wasn't that they were actually presenting real evidence for evolution. It was like they were just trying to knock any sense of God out of us. And at that point, I'm like, "What are you running away from?" Like it was this geology professor. I'm like, "You're you're you're actively trying to get away from something," and that actually sparked off this curiosity in me. So I'd, I'd had this prayer experience, but then this now hit me intellectually.
1: It's a moment where you actually turn around to look at what he's looking at, as in, "What what are you so scared of?"
2: Yeah. That's right. Like like he was he was trying to rationalise a worldview so that God didn't have to be part of it. And I remember just sitting like like
1: but having or having
0: started with a worldview, not starting with the evidence.
2: Exactly. I I remember just thinking this is actually not scientific. Like like it's not as though you're starting with the evidence. You're trying to get rid of something. You're trying to you know talk yourself out of something. And so that actually did the opposite. It actually made me go back to my faith a whole lot more and think well what have I missed? What is this guy so angry about? And so I actually started questioning my faith a whole lot more and, and asking more questions around the science. I remember around that time, I mean, there, was, there was a number of things. I, I was very much inspired by the life of Francis of Assisi. And I think that was a positive side of it where I started to realize that I'd missed a whole bunch about what Christianity really was. Mm. Having gone through Catholic schools for 12 years, I read the life of Francis. And I'm like, this guy knows Jesus in a way I've never been told. About. Look at
1: it and go, oh, It can look like this.
2: Yeah. Like this guy actually knows Jesus as someone alive and living, not just as like some ancient good moral teacher. Mm. But then from that, I started reading a bunch of stuff. I pretty much had given up on my science degree at that point. I spent all my time in the religion section of the library because I was like, I almost need to prove myself wrong on this. So like I've got to go back and read stuff, which is going to show me that Christianity is actually evil, you know. But I was going back and reading about the early church and the early martyrs, and the more I read, I was just like, oh, my goodness, why didn't anyone tell us about this stuff? Like, there is a whole side to the faith which has just been simplified almost into non-existence. But then some of the scientific stuff kicked in for me as well where I came across uh, some scientific experiments that had been done around the effects of crucifixion. Mm. And and I remember stumbling upon this because... You know, everyone gets told that Jesus died on the cross, but this was basically like a medical journal document explaining what the effects of the crucifixion was.
1: How you die.
2: And and I and I had a mate who was studying medicine, and I had to go to him saying like, "Can you explain these terms to me? Because I don't get what it's talking about." And the more he explained, I'm just like, "Oh my goodness!" <laughs> you know. But then came across the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and and this was one of the the clinches for me. That but so basically, for those who don't know, so. This is back in the 1600s, going late, going 15, 1500s. 15, 16. Yeah, I'm fuzzy on the dates. But um, Central America, the, the Aztecs, it was the Aztecs, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh,
1: well, it's slightly different. The Mayans? But Yeah, no, no. It, it's closer to Aztecs, but different. It's anyway. a long time since yeah, I've read
2: yeah. the story. But anyway, there was like massive human sacrifice going on. Um, you know, thousands of people every year being sacrificed to the sun god. Christianity came in, was completely unsuccessful in changing anybody from the religion. There was only one guy, one of the native guys, this guy Juan Diego, who had a conversion. And he was pretty much the only native guy who would go to mass. Uh, He was on his way to church one day, and he had this vision of a woman who basically said, look, you need to go and tell the bishop to build a church here. And he was basically seeing a vision of Mary. Now, when he saw the vision, he said, look, They're not going to believe me. And so she said, look, take off your coat. This this sort of bit of material they used to wear called a tilma. Tilma. And she said, okay, I'm going to put these flowers, these roses in the tilma. You have to wrap them up and then take them to the bishop. And so he did that. He wrapped them up, ran off to the bishop. and He said, look, this is a story. This woman appeared, said to build a church. Here's what she gave me. And he unraveled this tilma. And the bishop sees these roses, which are a very particular type of rose that came from a place in Spain where the bishop was from. But as he looks at them, these roses virtually melt into the material and form an image of Mary, which we now know as the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Now, it's the basic story, but there's been a whole bunch of research into- Which the... you can go and see. You can go I've and see. I've been there it's twice, it's in Mexico there. City.
1: It's extraordinary.
2: I came across this book which explains some of the scientific research done into the image.
1: And this kind of... this 400-year-old fabric. By the way, I think I still have your book. It's really good.
2: (laughs) That's where it's gone to. (laughs) They basically were trying to work out, what is this a fake? Has someone just painted it? Um, Where did it come from? And in all the research they've done, the scientists are just completely stumped because they're like, well... The type of material that's used for the cloth normally decays within 40 years. Four or 500 years later, it's still mm. there.
1: By the way, it was 1500s. Looked it up,
2: 1531. Okay, 1531. And anyway, there's so many of these things where they've tried to work out, is it painted? They can't even work out what the colouring on the material is. They can't work out. Can't, can't yeah, it's not color. paint. It's, it, not, it's not paint. It's something different. They never know what it is. But there was a whole series of stuff. And, and as I was reading this, I'm just like, well... The best scientists in the world can't work this out. Maybe some miracles actually do happen.
1: So there's a really cool one in that book where it talks about if you zoom in on the eye. Yes. And you've got that little white bit in the eye, there's a reflection of four people. So, so the basic idea is
2: if you take a photo of someone, you can see reflected in the eyeball the image of what they're looking at. Now, that wasn't really discovered until photography was invented back in the early 1900s but when they did really high resolution images of this image Mary's eyes are only open the tiniest little bit but what they could see was the reflection of four people in her eyes which matches the story so of there who was, was there, who was present of who was present it was this guy one diego the bishop the priest and some other guy and it's basically them standing looking down at this material and so it's almost like a photograph of Mary standing in front of them and this stuff just blew my mind. I was just yeah.
1: like... Likewise. Yeah.
2: Like, there, there's actually stuff here which science can't explain. Now, very very often people talk about, you know, the God of the gaps, you know, that we always invoke religion when we can't understand something. But I, I think we equally talk about the science of the gaps, that people kind of say, well, sure, science can't explain it now, but one day it will. One day it will. And we use that so easily to write off a miracle.
1: And this is it, is that there are so many miracles. If that was a one-off then you might be able to build some sort of case, but you're going to have to build that case again and again and again and again over so many miracles. I, didn't, I had never heard of Eucharistic miracles you know, where the host has turned into visible flesh in the priest's hands and that these are on display in some places. And for everyone that I know, anytime they've done, the scientists have done tests on it, it's come back as heart muscle mm. from a Middle Eastern man.
2: Same blood type.
1: Same blood type. Yeah. Uh, so either they kill on the same person, or it, but some of them have happened in front of the congregation. The priest oh, yeah. has actually held up the host and it has actually transformed into the physical appearance of Christ, or he was, but into the physical appearance. And so it's actually happened in front of them. So you've got all these witnesses as well.
2: And even when the, the host or, the, or, or particularly the wine or the blood has dried up, when congealed. they congealed like it, it is still actually living blood cells mm. and even that they're just like yeah that doesn't make sense like like it's not as though someone's done the old switcheroo and just like oh here we go here's a fake
0: sample there's another one this our lady of the our lady of the rocks in Colombia.
1: oh this is the one with the, the with the the image is basically penetrated through yeah. the rock is that the one
0: yeah so it's been there for a couple hundred years but this image appeared on the rocks of our lady holding jesus and you know i thought is it painted and stuff and we did experiments but the pigmentation it's actually different colored rocks and goes back a couple of meters so the image never as the rock face weathers over the last couple of hundred years the image never changes because the image is in the rock all the way all back. the way back
2: wow never heard of that one that's cool our
0: lady of Las
1: Lajas, where Oh, wow! I'm looking it up now. Yeah, I, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if it's just you know, sometimes you see a rock formation and go, "That looks like a face." No, 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 no that's it's... a really detailed painting. Look it up. Um, oh, it's, I have. It's Father Dave. You can see it. it's a properly detailed painting. That's like something you could see on canvas. Are
0: geologists in there drilling it to try and find how deep it is and stuff? And I don't know. I just think there's. If you're prepared to look, there's plenty
1: of evidence that God has left here. The Shroud of Turin always fascinates me because I firstly heard about the Shroud of Turin at uni, which for those who don't know the Shroud of Turin... Because it's a hoax! Yeah, well, this is the big thing at the time. I was hearing about it because it was being toted as a hoax. So the Shroud of Turin was reported to be the cloth that Jesus was buried in and that it it had his image on it, like a blood stain on the Shroud. The
0: cloth that in the Gospels say there's two
1: cloths wrapped up
0: in, in the tomb when Jesus wasn't there.
1: Yes. That cloth. That cloth. And when I was at uni, this big thing came out where they'd done some scientific experiments on it and had dated it to they'd only done, five or 600 years of age. Yeah, they'd done carbon dating and decided that it was from the Middle Ages. Yep, and so it was touted as a hoax. Yeah. But then, a number of years later, they discovered that where they'd taken the sample from was from a patched up area of the shroud and a few other things had happened with the fire and the contamination and so they had to redate it from the centre, and lo and behold, it's from the first century. Mm. And that story wasn't covered by any of the news. <laughs> but here's the really cool thing: is in the the latest test they've done on the Shroud of Turin, they've said it, it's not a blood stain on the fabric. In fact, it, it's not something that's imprinted onto the fabric at all. And the scientists who did it were I actually listened to a talk that they gave. The scientists said it's really difficult to explain what this is. The easiest way to explain it is Hiroshima. Mm. When the atomic bomb went off in Hiroshima, it left shadows on the walls of people who were walking down the street at the time. This is light. So what's happened here on the shroud is that the image has been created by a burst of intense light, but we've calculated how many lumens, which is how you rate the intensity of light. And we do not have the capability of even producing that amount of light.
0: And over a really short
1: time period. Yes, like a, it's a burst. A hundredth of a second, a millionth of a second or something. Incredible burst of light that is unproducible. We cannot do it. We mm-hmm. don't have the ability to do that. And that's what's created the image, which is now they've dated back to the time of Christ. So all of that lines up with that this was the cloth that Jesus was buried in.
0: Yeah, I also another stat about the Shroud of Turin, that various, like lots of scientists have looked at the Shroud over the over the years and almost all of them become Christian after studying it. Mm.
1: Well, that's the same with Lady of Fatima. It, we could just keep reeling these off. Mm. There's so many atheists who were there who became Christians from the apparition of our Lady of Fatima. or well, the miracle, I should say, not the apparition, the actual yes. miracle yeah. itself. Mm. Maybe that's something for people to look up. Marty, you have brought something to my attention, which I've then gone and looked at some of these talks Terminal lucidity. This one fascinates me. This is modern science. So this isn't something church-based, where science comes in to try and prove or disprove. This is something science-based that has big ramifications. So this is at at a at a religious level, at a faith level.
0: Yeah, this is really sort of scientific proofs or evidence for the existence of a soul. Which you know you hear a bit of static these days. You know, did you know did religions just make up this idea of a soul to control people um, and that kind of thing? But there's two bits. One is near death
1: experiences, and there's quite a few.
0: Yeah, well, there's a whole heap of studies now on near death experience. We can go and collect experiences of people.
1: Now I should I should actually clarify this: that when these doctors, the, the people who they were doctors, weren't they? Yeah.
0: Who yeah, were yeah. Undertaking yeah, yeah, it's peer-reviewed this... medical journal kind of.
1: So near death, as in they had clinically died.
0: Yep, they. So died, these are people
1: but, who clinically died. But I think they also
0: they also carved out the experiences that weren't verifiable by something within the experience. An example that I was hearing about was one of you know there's a guy who died on an operating table and saw as he approached the light saw a, a piece of footwear out on the hospital roof. And then (laughs) was revived and reported that there's this shoe on the roof. And later on, someone went and found it. Well, they sent a cleaner to have a look. And found that it was all true. Um, And he could not have known that by being dead on the operating
1: table. Hmm. My favourite one from that study was the bloke who was brought into the hospital clinically dead, taken into emergency, was revived they they put the what's the electric things what are they called defibr
0: defibrillator defibrillator
1: yep those things put defibrillators on him bang They get his heart beating getting, but he's still unconscious still in a coma he's then taken up to another ward eventually comes out of the coma at that point they're saying look you're going to be okay blah 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 but we're terribly sorry we've lost your false teeth and he said it's okay they're on top of the x-ray machine down in accident emergency <laughs> So they went and checked, had to get a stool to get up on top to check. And sure enough, his false teeth were up there. And they came back to you, how did you know that? And he said, I was when I came into the hospital, I was floating above my body. And then I watched you go to resuscitate me. And when you got the defibulate, defi, damn it, the electric shocky <laughs> things, he said, the nurse took my false teeth out. And she placed them up on the x-ray machine in haste. And then they, they got me ready and put the... Electric shock thing on and <laughs> defibrillator. Defibrillator? Def-
0: yeah, something like electric that. Electric shocky thing.
1: Defib. And bang. Yeah, the defib. And so he was part of the study as well. All these different. So they grab those data from these sort of fully verifiable
0: experiences from within the experience and collect it all together. And people, you know, within that group, there's sort of two groups. There's some who don't have a positive near death experience and, and the others who do, who either see a relative or a warm light or Jesus my grandmother had a near-death experience that she told me about again on an operating table when she was oh, she would have been 60 or something she had she had open-heart surgery and died on the table and and was revived and said she approached a light and when she got to the light she found that it was people dancing and one of the people was her father-in-law who turned around and said to her, "Filiamia," which means "my daughter." He, she wasn't his daughter, but that's how he spoke to all the all the girls in his family. were all called Filiamia. He said, "Filiamia, um, you need to go. You need to go back." And she did. And I tell you, from that moment onwards, she had no fear of dying. Mm. Unlike all, unlike all the rest of us, <laughs> she had no fear of dying. Waiting to be to be back in that place. Her experience that she told me about lines up with a lot of these near-death experiences. I can't find a naturalistic scientific explanation
1: for what's going on here if there's no soul. From this study, they concluded that the body has what they termed a transcendent soul. Hmm. But there was evidence of that. Actually, one of the hilarious examples from that study, and again, it should reiterate, this was a peer-reviewed study. This is a scientific journal. One of the hilarious ones was a guy who had died in his room while his family were outside in the waiting room knowing that he's dying. They revive him, and then they come in after he's been revived, but he'd been in the hallway listening to their conversation of the whole family arguing over who got his property. (laughs) (laughs) So, and the funny thing is I was uh, learning about this particular, um, the results from this peer-reviewed journal just before my grandmother passed away. And I happened to be there just after she passed away. And I can tell you, I was very, very cautious. About about
0: claiming the property.
1: Suddenly, no, suddenly very aware of, in in an even more intense way, the importance of who is in front of me. That this is grandma, she's just passed away. Her soul has just departed from her body. But in heaven, we are reunited Mm -hmm. with our body. And this was only last year. There was two years ago now but there was it was something that was very it did have a very big impact on me in learning about that and how we view the human person mm. Mm. there is a soul
0: so terminal lucidity is another piece of recent research where it's not uncommon for people with you know severely damaged brains through dementia and this kind of thing that within 24 hours or or 1 hour of actually dying that they become lucid And there's no change in their brain at that point. The degraded brain is the same as it was, you know, the day before, but they're not behaving the way that their limited, you know, body Mm. has been for years. And science can't explain that. Christianity can, as as the soul starts to detach from the body. And is no longer no reliant longer. on you know the limitations of the body, but science can't science can't really explain you know, what's going on with a brain that's still. It's a
2: very common thing. I was doing a funeral for a guy just the other day, and the family were saying the same thing that for 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 weeks and weeks they were not able to really communicate with him, but about a day before he died, he was suddenly as lucid as as anything, talking like. He just never aged. Yeah. So it's a very common phenomenon.
1: Mm. So it's all different things. And then we've got the saints. We haven't really mentioned the saints, have we? Of the, the miracles mm. of the saints themselves. I mean, St. Anthony of Padua. He, I always saw St. Anthony of Padua as a bloke who held a child.
2: That's the statue you see. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Now I now I know this is, this is Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's not just some kid. I just thought it was some kid. <laughs> to actually learn about his life preaching. And the miracles that he actually effectively called upon, basically to prove his point, there was the one where the the farmer started to have a go at him over Jesus being present in the Eucharist, and so Anthony of Padua said to the farmer, "Okay, starve your donkey for a few days, and then bring him to me, and you produce, you offer the donkey some hay, and I'll hold aloft the Eucharist." and The farmer did this and then brought his donkey to St. Anthony of Padua in the street and the farmer heard out some hay at last for the the starving donkey and St. Anthony held up the Eucharist and the donkey got down and knelt on its front knees and bowed before the Eucharist. (laughs) Uh, At that point, and this whole thing of if the donkey, (laughs) the donkey can even see that this is Christ. (laughs) This is God here. And then you have obviously St. Francis of Assisi with the stigmata. Mm. Who were the, the levitating ones? The saints. The saints. Oh, there's been a number of them.
2: There wasn't there one that had to tie down? St. Joseph of Cupertino, who, who the, the church made the patron saint of aviators. I, I, I think <laughs> the, the church has got a great sense of humour when it makes patron saints. But yeah, he, he was uh, well renowned for floating. <laughs>
0: Say, Bonaventure got the saint uh, of bowels or something, didn't he? I haven't heard that one. Bowel, bow, really? Bowel problems or something? <laughs> yeah.
2: The whole thing around miracles. Thanks for
0: that. <laughs> well, Thomas Aquinas got universities, and Bonaventure <laughs> got something to do with bowels. Mm. Anyway,
2: the whole thing around <laughs> miracles is a bit of a fascinating one because, as Christians, we'd kind of say, "Look, people witnessed it; it happened." Uh, but there's a lot of atheists who would obviously be very sceptical and say, "Well, uh, show me the show me the evidence." Particularly stories from the Middle Ages would mm. say, "Oh, look, back then people believed anything." There's always this yeah. idea that the the people in the old days were not educated, they were not enlightened, they would believe anything as a miracle. But even when you when you get to a lot of the modern philosophers, their their arguments kind of a bit circular, like because they sort of say, "Well," A miracle is something which is impossible by the laws of physics. If it happens, then maybe it's just happened regularly and we've just never seen it. So therefore, it's possible. So therefore, it's not a miracle. That's, that, that's one line of argument. Then the other line of argument is, well, it cannot be a miracle because there is no God. We know that there is no God. All there is is something physical and material. And so there has to be a physical explanation for it. Even if we can't work it out now, one day we will.
1: And so there's even a third one, which is we're just going to degrade the definition of miracle and we'll call things that are great or wonderful miracles. Yeah, everything becomes a miracle. It's a miracle. And therefore, when we talk about real miracles, we're just saying, oh, it was great or a spectacular. It was amazing. No, stop using miracle to describe how your team won on the weekend. The miracle win. Yes, the fact that your wife, Marty, said yes to you. It's great it's not a miracle though you're a good bloke
0: yeah thanks give me some credit yeah
1: actually use miracle for what it is meant to be which yeah. is something that is impossible
2: yeah but when you get into a lot of the modern atheists like people like richard dawkins their their argument basically presumes that it cannot happen and therefore they say well because it can't happen therefore it didn't happen it's not mm. particularly scientific, scientific. <laughs> Whereas I think what the church is trying to say is, OK, there are certain things that don't make sense and we probably need to be open to the fact that there's some other force at work here.
1: But that's not where the church started, is it? We start with Jesus mm. and then you've got all this evidence that backs it up. And this was the thing that I struggled with at uni was once I got to this point of, OK, if Jesus existed in history, then surely there must be evidence that has transcended through history mm. from that moment. And then starting to see it and going, oh, wow, it's here. If you're prepared to
0: look, there's plenty. Mm. And if you're not prepared to look, you won't find it. It
1: comes back to that ultimate question, though. Who is Jesus? And what is God? Was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic? Was he the Lord?
2: So this is C.S. Lewis's basic proposition. He says that we can't just say that Jesus is a good moral teacher because the fact that he says that that he is divine, if he's not divine, then he's not a good moral teacher either.
0: He's because lying.
2: he's lying. Or he's a lunatic. you know, a He like,
0: thinks he's God and he's not.
2: Yeah, like someone saying that they're Napoleon. Or if Marty was to say that he's a, he's a, he's a hat.
1: Or I'm to say I'm an engineer.
2: Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you're facing three scenarios here. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. Now, a lot of the modern atheists would throw in a fourth one, which is he's simply a legend. Yeah. And we made up the story. Now, for a lot of the modern atheists, that becomes the easy way out. Yeah, but that ignores history.
1: Exactly. It absolutely ignores history.
2: Not just religious history. There must have been an enormous conspiracy in the time of the early church. That included the Roman Empire and everyone. (laughs) They're all in on it. Yeah, all the enemies. Everyone's in
1: on this. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just one damn conspiracy.
2: But you've got very interesting things. I'm trying to remember who the Roman author was. There was so, so, Josephus. So Joseph, no, no, he was he was a Jewish author. So, 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 so the so, so the Jewish Damn it, got it wrong. <laughs> the I Jewish, I had that one. The Jewish historian Josephus uh, talks about the existence of Jesus, and he talks about how this guy was doing miracles and all sorts of stuff. But there's an interesting thing in the book, uh, The Case for Christ. He refers to this that obviously in the story of the crucifixion, it talks about how there was a, an eclipse of for three hours while mm. Jesus was on the cross. There were other documentation from Roman authors from other parts of the Roman Empire who talk about there being an eclipse which was not predicted. So all the astronomers had worked out when an eclipse was going to happen, but they talk about on this particular year, this particular date there was an eclipse, and no one knew that oh, it was going to happen or why it happened.
1: Aye.
2: And so you've, you've even got verifying evidence for the story of that. It in places it in time. It, it places it in time, but but this is from different places, like like yeah. from other parts around the Mediterranean. So you, you've got that that corroborating evidence, which would suggest that we didn't just make this story up.
0: Tacitus. Yeah.
1: That's the guy, Tacitus. It's come back to me with the help of Google. Google. <laughs> Google. <laughs> It is quite amazing, isn't it? The body of evidence that does exist at that level. But it really does come back to Jesus and some of the things we've covered in the, in the previous podcasts. of Prayer and the church and actually getting to that source right at that point. And then the evidence itself. I needed it. For different people, it's going to be different what, what the obstacle is. Um, I needed to look at it from that rational perspective and see the fingerprint of God. And it's simply
2: a starting point. It's Mm. like trying to prove that your grandmother exists, but then you've got to sit down and talk with her and and work out the fact that she loves you. Yeah, to find out who she is. Who she is. You know, so for a lot of people, this is the argument they get stuck on. And I think a lot of people like staying stuck on it because they don't want to go to the next part of Mm. meeting him because they're afraid that maybe he's going to be a big, bad, judgmental God. You know, he's not particularly going going to be merciful. But I think if you, if you take that leap of faith, if you will, you know, look at the evidence to the point where you believe there is enough to get me to that next step and say, OK, God, it's over to you now. Should you show me who you are? Now, that, that was pretty much my journey. I, I think I'd read enough to then take that leap and say, OK, God, show yourself, prove yourself, do something. If, you, if you're actually there, meet me. Now, I, I can't explain what God did, but he obviously did enough to get me here now being a priest. And I've pretty much spent the last 20 years trying to prove myself wrong.
1: <laughs> if you prove yourself wrong, do you win or lose?
2: Well, th- well, this is the thing. I was talking to a bunch of young people.
1: You don't have a job. And <laughs>
2: <laughs> Let me finish my point here. <laughs> this young guy, at the end of this whole presentation about you know the existence of God, this young guy said, tell me in one sentence why I should believe you. And I basically had to say, look, at that time, this was a few years ago. I said, look, I'm a 38 year old celibate who owns nothing. I want to be wrong. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've spent many years trying to disprove this, but the more I read, just simply proves it more and more. So that that's my journey. Like I've, i I'm not trying to find evidence for the case. I'm almost trying to find evidence against it. But the mm. more I look at, the almost like it's the only thing that makes sense.
1: Father Dave, would you like to close us in prayer as this is the final episode for this particular series?
2: So let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we pray that you would prove yourself to us, that you would encounter us, that somehow you would draw us into a place where we feel your love drawing on our souls, revealing to us who we actually are, what we've been made to be. Give us the courage to meet you and to know you. and Lord, we just pray that that hunger would lead us into the fullness of life. We pray your blessing upon us gathered here on this table and anyone who's listening. Pray your blessing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. 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 The Lady of the Rosary. Pray, pray for us. For us.